by clinical trainees and for clinical trainees, this is Well-Rounded. Well-Rounded is your resource for all things healthcare business, policy, and current events. This episode is about anti-Asian American and Pacific Islander, or AAPI, racism within the medical field. Dan and Isabel talked to Dr. Amy Zhang, an anesthesiology resident at the University of Washington, who is a fierce advocate for anti-racism in medicine. She's also the president-elect of the Resident and Fellow Physician Union Northwest. A heads up for our listeners that this episode does include some explicit language. Welcome to Well-Rounded. Dr. Amy Jung, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming to Well-Rounded. So we always like to start just learning a little bit about what you do. So if you could just tell us a little bit about um, what you're up to in residency these days. So right now we are working in the general ORs a lot, keeping patients alive, asleep, and comfortable. And outside of that, I'm trying to just continue to advocate for residents and prepare for um, my presidency as the RFPU Northwest president-elect. Well, congratulations again on being elected to this important role. You know, today we wanted to talk about the experiences of our Asian American and Pacific Islander colleagues in medicine. Our listeners are likely familiar uh, with the shootings that happened in Atlanta in March. Um, Sadly, these events occurred alongside a broader rise in anti-Asian hate crimes across the country. You've been very outspoken about this issue. Uh, Dr. Zhang, what should we as trainees know about this tragic problem? So I think what's really important is for everyone to get an understanding of what's going on. There has been a dramatic increase in anti-Asian racism and hate incidents in recent years, partly due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And what we have is, according to the Stop AAPI Hate Reporting Center, within the past year, there had been 6,603 hate incidents that had been reported to this database. In addition, anti-Asian hate crimes had increased nearly 150% in 2020. And according to more recent statistics, that number might actually be higher. The other things to keep in mind is that these incidents are intersectional, um, and there is a component of gender in relation to this. So women have actually reported 2.3 times as many incidents to the Stop AAPI Hate Reporting Center compared to men. Why do you think that is? I think it's because people are targeting who seems more vulnerable. And they think that partially due to stereotypes about AAPI and AAPI women in particular. They think that we're more likely to be submissive and they think that we're less likely to fight back. So as an Asian American trainee yourself, um, we've no doubt that these events, you know, have affected you on a personal level. And you've actually written about your own experience um, as a victim of racially motivated harassment. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the incident in question happened back in March of 2020. As someone who lives in Seattle, which is a place that was very progressive and that seems very metropolitan and diverse, I just wanted to give some context that I thought this was a very safe place to live in beforehand. Um, So as a trainee, as you all know, we work really long hours. And when you live in a place like Seattle, you don't see sunlight a lot because often (laughs) in a hospital before dawn and you're out of the hospital after dark. 
So on this particular day, I was working the night shift, which starts in the early evening. So I decided to actually walk to the hospital. And when I was about a block away from the hospital, there was a white man standing on the street corner within a few feet or a long arm's reach of me. And he started muttering things that were very disparaging and targeting my ethnicity. He was saying things like, fuck you, China, for giving us smallpox. And then as I continued walking, he started following me and he started getting more aggressive and agitated. And he was yelling at me. Um, I didn't catch everything that he yelled. But one of the things that I remember very distinctly, just because of how sexually aggressive it was as well, and because it used a racist epithet that I had never been called before, um, was fuck you, you gook, fuck you in the ass. I was walking quickly at the time, but I was afraid of running because I didn't want to provoke him into running and chasing after me and possibly escalating this even more physically. Yeah. Mm, that's that's just awful. Yeah. The thing that's really changed for me was my view of Seattle overall as a safe place. And as a result of knowing that this could happen and that this happened so early on in the pandemic before anti-Asian sentiment really reached its peak, it really changed how I approach my lifestyle and my habits. Like I stopped walking outside as much. I switched over to driving exclusively to work. So this was something that also had a financial toll on me. Can we ask you after this horrible event happened, did you tell the University of Washington? Did you talk to authorities? What what happened after this? So because I was reporting for the start of my shift, I actually did not call the police or talk to authorities because I felt somewhat reasonably that for what would be considered a relatively minor crime with no physical injuries, it would probably take a very long time for police to respond. And that would probably interfere with me getting to work on time. I ended up reaching out to my fellow residents. Um, we have a group chat, so I sent out a message on there to vent about it and to express my anger, fear, and frustration about it. And everyone was super supportive. Like they were reaching out to me, checking in on me. So that was really nice. You know, it's it's shocking to hear to us that our AAPI colleagues are enduring these abuses. What has been the support from the medical community and um, what problems do we need to address within our own ranks so that everybody feels welcome and included? The University of Washington overall has released a statement condemning anti-Asian attacks, condemning racism, but my department has not officially acknowledged this presence. And my department held one forum to discuss race and racism, which was held at a time that most of us were usually working and cannot attend. And we have an anonymous feedback box. That's pretty much it. So within the medical community itself as well, um, there's also significant racial and socioeconomic inequities that need to be addressed. For instance, for BIPOC and for API med students, it's more difficult to get into Alpha Omega Alpha than for white students. Black and API med students are more likely to get less than stellar subjective evaluation terms um, on their clerkship grades. There is something called the bamboo ceiling for physicians, which is that 
out of all the different races and ethnicities, AAPI are the least likely to be promoted to management levels. And you can actually see that in medicine, which is a field where about 20% of physicians are AAPI. We are definitely not looking around and seeing that one in five leaders of departments or med schools look like they are AAPI or even non-white necessarily. Yes. Given those figures, I was wondering what you could tell us about your plans are um, as president-elect for the union, you know, at the University of Washington and how you think you can help both, you know, Asian American and Pacific Islander residents um, within your own program and what plans you have for the upcoming year. In terms of what we're doing as a union, I think we're already taking a lot of the right steps. We're we're very strongly prioritizing anti-racism. So we've actually been participating in these, you know, capacity building sessions where we've hired an outside racial equities consulting firm um, to provide education and to teach us. So in addition to doing homework, um, we also spend two hours a month um, in these sessions learning as a group. And it's not just learning. We also get to, you know, interact and participate. So it's a very active learning experience. As a union, we've been trying to get anti-racism into the curriculum for residents at University of Washington. So we're working on that. One of our chiefs has a lot of great initiatives on the line. He wants to get more residents on the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Council. And he also wants to create affinity groups and safe spaces for residents. So I think if those proceed, that would be awesome. Yeah, I think that'd be awesome just to have more residents at the table, um, kind of helping share perspectives and helping make important decisions. Um, We really appreciate your expertise, uh, Dr. Zhang. If it's okay with you, we'd actually like to change gears a little bit uh, and discuss you know, how bias and discrimination work their way into our everyday interactions. Um, You know, it's probably fair to say that all three of us have had encounters where patients demand a different physician or nurse based on race, ethnicity, language, gender, take your pick. Um, How have you all navigated these requests kind of in your day to day? And, and, you know, how, how do you react I mean, I think I'm relatively fortunate as someone in anesthesia that usually by the time you're about to have surgery and you're meeting an anesthesiologist, most patients do not feel like requesting a different anesthesia provider because they understand (laughs) that that might not be possible with staffing. Yeah. You know, Dan and I were talking about this a lot before this podcast episode um, because it sounds like at Dan's institution, it sounds like they have some training around this and at other institutions they do as well. But, you know, I think especially on medicine and some other services, patients will say, and I've heard from my own colleagues within psychiatry, you know, I don't want X provider because of their race, because of their gender. And it seems like the thing that most institutions have said is, well, you know, too bad, this is your provider. But then it also puts stress on the provider because they're faced with potentially a racist or sexist patient. So what sort of is the answer and what should institutions be doing? And this is sort of the conversation we had. So we're fortunate in that uh, we actually get training on this, on you know how to navigate these conflicts. And for us, 
you know, we're at a safety net hospital with an enormously diverse patient population and equally diverse group of physicians, nurses, and all of the staffing that, that make the hospital work. So for us, it doesn't feel like you have to burden, you have to bear the burden of these encounters alone. You can kind of lean back on uh, the shared values that we have as an institution that diversity of backgrounds and experiences makes us better. And we're so sorry, but we're not going to change our nurse because you asked us to. So that makes it easier. And then we also have sessions with trained actors who are supposed to force us to practice navigating these encounters. And they're a little bit painful, to be honest, but I, I think it's good that we do it and that we have the opportunity to practice. I feel like we actually have the opposite extreme where I'm training. We don't really have a lot of training on this. Um, and then when I did talk to one of the attendings on the EDI council asking this question, um, what they actually said was that we at University of Washington don't want a blanket policy on this because patient autonomy is important. So that means that if a patient wants to reject a healthcare worker or a healthcare provider because of their demographics, we might accommodate that depending on what the rationale is. I think it's important to understand and delve into the rationale for why someone might want a different person involved in their care. Like a woman who is requesting for an OB-GYN procedure not to have a man involved versus someone who, a racist who is requesting not to have a person of color involved in their care may have very different motivations. And one of them is more likely to stem from hate and bias. And one of them might be for more understandable reasons, like the fact that you just don't want someone from a different gender down in your genitals for a very vulnerable procedure. That said, I also think that it's a huge weakness in our institution not to have some kind of policy that people can reference. Because having an institutional policy against you know, certain types of inappropriate behaviors or requests from patients and visitors can really empower people within the healthcare community who are from marginalized backgrounds, like BIPOC, like AAPI, like women, or LGBTQIA, non-binary individuals, to actually say, like, no, we can't accommodate your request, and it's against institutional policy to accommodate that request instead of making it an individual battle that they have to fight. Yeah, we don't have a, a an, an institutional policy where I work either. Um, Isabel, do you? No, and I think that's such a good point because I think, you know, healthcare workers in general are just always kind of put in these vulnerable situations. And a lot of times, like, we are asked to sacrifice a lot in terms of patient care. Um, and I think it's really important to feel like you're being, you know, your safety is under consideration as well. And just there are so many times when it's not um, that I agree. I think it's, you know, important to have some institutional policies where people feel like safety from their institution. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Zhang, for everything that you do to increase awareness on these issues. What advice do you have for trainees, you know, like us, like yourself, uh, who are striving to make medicine more inclusive? I think there's a number of different things that you could potentially do. Bystander intervention training. That provides you with tools for you to step in um, and for you to potentially diffuse situations where someone is being targeted or victimized because of their demographics. Um, I also think it's very important to understand and educate yourself on these issues, both about 
what racism is, what the history of racism is in this country, and also about how you can be an anti-racist and how you can actually examine your own biases. I think it's important for people to speak up and to advocate for others who might be in marginalized uh, situations or marginalized conditions where they may not have as much power. I also think that as we become attendings, as we become physician leaders, um, we need to address these institutional biases. The fact that there is a bamboo ceiling, the fact that there is a glass ceiling, the fact that there are so many barriers to advancement for BIPOC individuals are things that we need to address and things that we need to change. Amen. I think that's a good point to end on. Isabel, is that a wrap? I think that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to another episode of Well-Rounded. Well-Rounded is made by Isabel Rosenthal, Dan Arteaga, and Lauren Tronic. Sound engineering is by Tommy Bazarian. And our theme music is by R.O. Shapiro and Micah Motenko. For more episodes and information, visit wellroundedmed.com and be sure to follow us at Well-Rounded Med on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks, y'all.